Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, it's Bao and Chris here. It's literally Gaysians. Gaysians. And we're talking about food on here today. The perennial favorite topic of all Asian people. I'm sure everyone has seen the block-long lines of Asian folks, especially young ones outside of the latest hotspot delicacy. I still can't get over our day-long group chat of our friends trying to get a cronut. A fucking cronut. And my mom has always like made this problematic joke about Chinese people telling me that Chinese people don't have emotions, but the only emotions they have are for money and food. I still remember the first time you said that and I wanted to like respond and be mad, but I couldn't because it described me to a T. Also, you make fun of Vietnamese people so much. Like I have that one joke and I'm going to use that one joke all the time. Yeah, I have plenty of content for Vietnamese people. (laughs) (laughs) But are you a foodie? Uh, It goes up and down, depending on my financial standing in life during the moment. I'm definitely a foodie when I was working in uh, big tech, and they paid for multiple Michelin star restaurants. And so as we've both said, food always tastes better when it's free. It definitely does. And I think I'm a foodie, mostly because I'm a former fat kid. Great flavors, just really like activate all the pleasure centers in my brain. And I think like during my 20s, when I came out and I started to be a part of the scene, I lost a little bit of weight and then I had sort of like a nefarious relationship to food. I dieted it way too much, which led to binge eating like two nacho plates in one sitting in the Castro after mm-hmm. um, one night there. out. Not one night out, every night out, basically. Um, it may have been a borderline disordered eating, um, but since the pandemic, I think I've found a much healthier relationship to food. There's irony in saying that because I'm actually starving right now because I'm intermittent fasting. <laughs> 
didn't you last time talk about intermittent fasting was when you just figured out that you had some disordered eating? I think the intermittent fasting is fine because there's like research to back up why it's good. So it's not two days of fasting. Yeah. One, one, one time someone mentioned to me that he, he does 48 hours of fasting a week and I'm like, oh, I'll try that. Then I realized that sort of disorder. <laughs> yeah. I think also as I got gayer, I developed an unhealthy relationship also through body dysmorphia. And I definitely learned or relearned through the pandemic since I had to force myself to learn to cook better. I remember in 2021, I thought mm-hmm. I caught my first COVID because it was pre-vaccine, but because my dinner tasted so bad. And a few <laughs> minutes later, I figured out it was just actually disgusting. <laughs> so at that point, uh, I had no choice but to attempt to make tastier food for myself from social media, which brings up our guest who knows a thing or two about food. First of all, he's a real chef, but also... <laughs> He's America's Gaijin chef sweetheart. In fact, his drag name could be Pad Thai LaBelle, Felicia Keys, Stephanie Curry. These are so ridiculous. He's Chinese, though. So do you have like a Chinese one? Uh, Let me look through my list. I've got Edith P.F. Chang's. That's terrible. (laughs) How how and why do you have so many of these, uh, these names prepared? It's 15 years of uh, the Rice Raquettes and trying to come up with names for our sisters. You know, we've got the famed Rice Raquettes sisters, Laichi Minnelli, Lulu Ampia, and Sushi Rolita. Oh, God. Even our good friend, LA superstar, Miss Shu Mai, and I Vancouver delight, Lulu Lomain. There's just something <laughs> rather popular uh, with Asian drag queens that love being named after foods. I don't forget kimchi. Kimchi, the most famous superstar. <laughs> so, Chef John Kung's gonna join us on the podcast. You might know him from TikTok or YouTube or the podcast One for the Table. And his first cookbook is coming out on October 31st called Kung Food. And you better pre order it. You can find a link in our show notes to help drive up Gaijins on the bestseller list. So, let's hear more about him. Let's hear about his new book and let's start the show. Yes. Literally Gaysians. Literally Gaysians. Hi, John. Welcome to Literally Gaysians. Hello. Hello, everybody. Good to have you. It's good to be here. Also, Chris, I just want to say um, Edith P.F. Chang's is great, but Edith Pilaf was right there. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Missed a golden opportunity. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So where are you joining us from, John? I'm at home in Detroit right now. So this is like my office studio. This is where I do all of my video editing. It's a very serene space because it's a lot better than anything. If this was just an actual light, I would just be in a Detroit basement. But yeah, no, this is like my creative space where I do my all my video edits and my voiceovers. It looks very zen. And you have the gay lighting. Yeah, it I is, love is it. Very, we got the bisexual lighting going over here. Yes. yes, you do. Yeah, And you have your dog in the back. Yes, and Boba is in the back. We went on a... Boba. Yeah, she is completely unconscious right now because I took her on her first 8.7 mile run. You did an 8.7 mile run this morning already? Yeah. Well, I'm I'm in the East Coast time, so... 
we've had a full day already. You well, I still just got up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. I know. I know. <laughs> We're both unemployed, so what, what, time, what day and time is it anyway? <laughs> right. I'm, I'm happy you actually made this. It's okay. Content creators don't know what day it is either. We just That's what we day. are. We're content yeah, exactly. creators. Sure. Content, sure. We're content creators. So we're all friends, and we met through the esteemed, world-renowned drag queen, foodie queen, kimchi. So John, tell us about the time we met. I want to hear it from you. Oh, I remember it uh, so well. It was for Kim Chi's birthday. And for the trip, she hyped everybody up so much because of her previous experience. I think it was the one, the time that she hung out with you guys last was a time that she almost missed a flight to a gig because she was partying so hard. <laughs> and so I was very excited because I'd never done anything like that before. And was it a... Joshua Tree? It was. It, it was, was yeah. the first Joshua Tree Original, trip yeah. with, yeah, it was you guys, Kim, Naomi, and I, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it, it, <laughs> it was amazing. It was such a great time. And if anybody wants to like hear about what we got up to, just listen to um, the Sibling Rivalry podcast and listen to Na- uh, Monet talk about visiting Mesopotamia and you can get an idea of what it was like. <laughs> I remember that Mesopotamia trip. I held her up during that. Yeah, right. <laughs> so what was it like, like coming into a room full, of, I think there were like 10 of us and like a whole weekend. All strangers. Yeah, it was, it was a, stranger. yeah, well, I mean, yeah, we had never met before and then it was like an extended weekend of partying. And honestly, I was down for it. I trusted Kim's judgment in people, which I think it's one of her best People who know Kim understand this to be a quality that she has, where she's just mm-hmm. like a very good. Ju- she has a she has very good judgment of other people, and she has a knack of bringing really interesting, cool, and kind people together. And so, even though we hadn't been fr- well, obviously we hadn't been friends back then, as long as we were now. But like, even back then, I was like, okay, I I, I can do this. Let's just do this, and it was great. And I remember when you showed up, we were all just like, what a babe. Who is this guy? <laughs> no, I think you and guys were judging my boots <laughs> or shoes. Okay. No, we were <laughs> yeah. not yeah, thinking yeah, yeah, about yeah, your yeah. shoes. No, no, no. I think you Rob, we Rob did because it was it was a pair of leather high tops in uh-huh. the desert. And <laughs> it was like literally a, a gift pair of shoes that Kim had just given me before the trip. And so I was like, I'm going to wear these. And then, like, say, like, oh, I'm in the desert. In 100-degree weather. Yep. (laughs) And I remember um, you cooked breakfast for all of us. So we didn't just party. We did have one meal. No, 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 we did. We (laughs) We weren't hungry. I think we tried. (laughs) We tried. We did our best. I still have the video of you making that food for us. It was like you were wearing the shortest crop top, making eggs. (sighs) And that was all the way back in uh, 2019. And then a few months after that, the pandemic hit. Uh, all of our lives changed, but yours especially. Was it? You really? Twenty nineteen? Was it twenty? Yeah, I think we did like twenty. Wow. Yeah, I thought it was twenty eighteen. It was twenty nineteen. I know because me and my ex had just broken up, and then like Uh, we had a like big like I forgive you moment. (laughs) I remember that (laughs) because I was gonna move to LA. Yeah, I I think it was twenty nineteen. That was also, yeah, it it made meeting you for the first time very memorable. (laughs) (laughs) We kept insisting, there's not going to be any weird energy. Won't be any weird energy. (laughs) 
but yeah, as you said, yeah, the pandemic changed a lot of people's lives, everybody's lives, some more so than others. And then certainly mine. I was, I mean, like, it was weird that you guys met me through Kim and Kim was already top of her game in this line of work of being somebody who is a content creator, influencer, drag queen type thing. When we first met, I would that was not anything that I was going for at all. I had no interest in it. I didn't know it was a thing for me. Mm-hmm. And then the pandemic hit. And then I think it was like the next time we saw each other, I was like, yeah, this is kind of like what mm-hmm. I do now a little bit. I feel like the next time we hung out, TikTok was still like, it was big, but people didn't know how big it was going to get. And by the third time we got together, it was just like, yeah, Kim and I have a podcast together. This is what we do. I, my, my whole life is different now. Well, how did that all happen? Like the taking off on Instagram? I mean, when we were TikTok. all, it happened really during the lockdown, right? So... We were all stuck in our homes, no matter where in the country we were. We didn't know what was going on. There was just an over, like overarching feeling of fear and dread and uncertainty. And I was already on TikTok just watching. Um, mm-hmm. Before even the pandemic was on, I had joined TikTok shortly after it switched from being Musical.ly. And... I would go every couple of weeks, I would like scroll past like maybe like four or five videos and being like, I don't get it. This isn't for me. Everyone here is a child, but (laughs) there is something special about this. I don't quite understand what yet. So I'm just going to keep checking back every few weeks and seeing like what becomes of it. And then as I was, and as like, you know, time goes, went by, I noticed, oh, okay. Older people are joining um, it's not just like, uh, I guess it was like a lot of dancing and singing and, uh, lip syncing stuff before. And, um, it started becoming, I noticed, uh, cosplayers and mm. I enjoy watching people. Like I love seeing the creativity of cosplay for the very same reason why I love watching people in drag. It was very much the same thing. I love the creativity, the craft of it. So I, I never do it myself cause I don't have patience, but <laughs> watching that. And then things got, there were some political TikTokers that started going on. And I don't think I was following anyone who was doing food yet. Mm -hmm. I started cooking on TikTok before I saw cooking on TikTok. And that was during the lockdown. And the reason why I did that was because everybody on TikTok was like a bunch of young, mostly younger people talking about how scared they were. And I was like, well shit what can i do and i was like well i can i can teach them how to de uh how to deconstruct a chicken for soup <laughs> i can teach them how to make a frittata i can teach them how to stretch beans like the the world is ending i can teach them how to do how to survive with as little as they possibly can because when you're when you work at a restaurant that's that's every day and so I had, that's when I really started to blow up was like doing cooking videos. And then once things got, once things got a little less doom and gloom, we were able to go grocery shopping and stuff. I had Mm -hmm. by that time become comfortable on video. My first few videos, I refused to speak. I was like, 
I hated the sound of my own voice. I didn't want to talk. I just wanted to just do these like hands-only, very buzzfeedy, foodie type videos just with really bad production. Then I started talking. Once I started getting more comfortable, I started to show off the things that I was doing, like my dinners that I was doing, the Miyazaki dinners I was doing in Detroit, where I would do like themed sit-down tasting menus in the city of Detroit. And I was like, well, let's mm, just so cool. show these anime-inspired foods um, mm-hmm. and take videos of me making these old recipes again. And then it really blew up. And then I got my first brand partnership with Funimation. And then I realized, oh, my God, this is a career. And then after, mm-hmm. yeah. And Mixing then after like a few dogs. Yeah, yeah. And after um, a few of those... And I realized that within the span of like a couple months, I made more money than I. Sorry, I don't know if you can hear my dog. Oh, <laughs> but she's, yeah. Just give me, give me a second. Hey, shut. <laughs> uh, what was I say? Oh, when I when I realized that in a couple of months I had made more. When I realized that I had I had in a couple of months made more money than I had made as a line cook in an entire year, I was like, um, "Wow, I'm gonna stick with this." And if nothing comes out of it, well, something's already come out of it. But like, if it doesn't last past the pandemic, I can always go back to food. Mm-hmm. And it definitely lasted past the pandemic. It's definitely just what I do now. So you're telling us you're the originator of the TikTok food review voice. Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, uh, the, 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 uh, the storytelling food TikTok, like I will take some credit for it. Um, but I think it was kind of jointly created at the same time by both me and Joanne Molinero, the Korean vegan. Oh, I love the Korean oh, vegan. Yeah. You were one of the first food social media things I followed. I used to refuse to follow those like hands over the hands over a bowl uh, ones because they were also so cheesy. And you were the only one on TikTok that I followed. Yeah, I think those are just called hands hands and pans. Those are called hands and pans hands or hands and only. Like the music I listen to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think of the the crazy insane TikTok voices, you know the ones that review restaurants. Like you guys have, have to Do you guys <laughs> love burritos? <laughs> the best restaurant to go right now is Carbone and if you can't get a table you might as well kill yourself. <laughs> It's always those. They're so unhinged, which is why we love yours. And I don't know who who originated that other voice. I, I don't know either, but I'm kind of here for it. It's when when videos are just like straddle that line of like, are they serious or is this parody? <laughs> like those are my favorite ones because I am both entertained and infuriated. I'm I'm angry, but I'm entertained, so of course I'm sticking around. It's like the best tweets. You can't tell if they're parody or not. Have you always wanted to work in food? Like how how did it become such a big part of your life? I was I was never afraid of being in the kitchen. I was never afraid of like trying things in the kitchen. I was making dishes in a sense, I was making dishes long before I was I actually knew how to cook. Mm-hmm. Um my poor undergrad roommates. I because we like uh, I spent my undergrad like in a house with a bunch of with a couple of other artists. And 
you know, I would just be making stuff without really knowing how to cook. I only set the burner to high on our electric stove. I like never followed directions. I understand that things needed to be hot enough so everything that needed to die in the food would die so people wouldn't get (laughs) sick. But like I would just be making these concoctions and because we were undergrad people and I was just using like pre-made Myers sauces from the Asian aisle, like I thought I knew what I was doing. I did not know what I was doing. Everything just tasted like hoisin sauce. But um, I think because of that, because of that and because I had encouragement from people who literally had no better options available to them, once it came time for me to actually teach myself how to cook, which I would do while I was in law school. Mm, you were in law school. Yes, that's right. I, it was one my it, when I was in law school, teaching myself how to cook properly was the only creative outlet that I could justify spending time away from studying on. Mm-hmm. While I was studying law, I was also teaching myself classic Cantonese cooking, Cantonese American cooking mostly, but mm-hmm. still, but also like Cantonese home recipes, steamed fish and, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it was basically just uh, all done through research and self-study and also trying to cook um, the things that I loved eating when I was back home in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. Um, because living in Detroit, you don't have those options available to you, even in restaurants. I imagine if I lived in New York or Los Angeles, I might have never, ever tried learning how to cook because I wouldn't have needed to. It's also available to you. Yeah. I I mean, I live in K-Town. I've lived in SoCal or like San Francisco all my life, and there's still those five to ten dishes that my mom makes that I have to call her that they never carry in any kind of Vietnamese restaurant. Yeah, as the home cooking is, especially especially for Asian home cooking, so a lot of them take so much time, so much labor, so much effort that is just like not practical to do mm-hmm. in a commercial setting. So a lot of those dishes like are just really special to us at home. Or they're super simple and nobody assumes that anyone would ever eat them outside of their house. Yeah, I think what yeah. drew me towards your videos was um, how uniquely Cantonese-American these mashups were that I only knew as a kid and then I was seeing for the first time again on the internet. And that's why I started watching those because I never could learn them from my mom because she has severe ADHD. She can't teach me a recipe. And so you describe yourself as a third culture kid. What does that mean? How does that inform your the food that you show on social media. So just based on knowing the both of you and knowing who you guys are, like we're all third culture kids. We Mm. all grew up with a solid cultural foundation that is based on that of our parents' culture. Mm -hmm. And we, and within and outside of that was a completely separate culture of what it is to be in the United States. You both grew up Mm. in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. For me, it was the US and Canada. Um, And so, you know, I, it's such a cliche at this point, or at least to to me it is because I'm perpetually on TikTok and everything seems to be like three years ahead when it Mm -hmm. comes to culture. But it seems like a cliche now where you say like, oh, I cross a cultural threshold by like open stepping through my front door every morning where it's like we where it's like for mm-hmm. me just 
very, very Chinese inside my home and on the outside, it was either very Canadian or very American in my case, like, you know, North York and Toronto and then the Midwest in Michigan. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's complete immersion. It's complete cultural immersion with two very different cultures where we had to grow up and develop in. And with immersion comes understanding of nuance in so many different ways and how that translates creatively um, in my case, third culture cooking is, is that nuanced understanding of like what the food is like in both places and having that in-depth understanding of, of how people enjoy that food. Uh, you can use that as a leg to create completely unique dishes of your own. And like some really good examples of that is a lot of the stuff that you see made by younger people in K-Town. Mm -hmm. They do a lot of these intricate fusions. A lot of Japanese American like cafes are very mm -hmm. much like this, where it's like, it's not just fusion where somebody is just like, oh, I'm a white male chef who studied French culinary and I'm using soy sauce for the first time in a very novel way. It's more <laughs> like, oh, I grew up Korean and I lived in a city that was surrounded by Mexicans and I love Mexican food and Korean food. And now here is a dish that presents an understanding of what both people actually like mm -hmm. and how pe and both people can actually appreciate. To me, that is what third culture cuisine is as opposed to just basic fusion. It's a brand new dish. It is. It's something that's brand new, but familiar to two completely separate groups of people. Yeah, or like when you're on TikTok and you see like Latino families bringing tortillas to the Korean barbecue. Oh my god, that's amazing! <laughs> I will, I'm going to start doing that. That's like the best thing. It is. It is. And and in California, now you're starting to see like in like the suburbs of San Gabriel Valley, a lot of like younger Chinese people are opening these like really interesting concepts of foods. I went to one where it's like basically Joshua Tree. You're in tents, and then but it's a skewer restaurant. And in Orange County, where all of the Vietnamese Americans are in Garden Grove and Little Saigon, there's a lot of like new interesting shops opening up, mostly from like the newer immigrants from Vietnam. It's less like fusion food, but more like these are some new dishes that like some Vietnamese people came up with in the last 10 years, like That's snail so dishes cool. and stuff that are just so delicious. And, and you also see something that was so staunchly in like the that foundational cultural culture, like say like. 15 years ago, fish sauce was really just Asian to me. Yeah. And then slowly moves toward third culture. Then it can slowly move toward like the dominant culture in whatever city you're like or country you're living in. Yeah. And to see like that just happen in like the span of 30 years is just kind of amazing. Yeah, it's wild. And it's so nice to see like that they, it had been happening in like the culinary world. Or, or, or I guess the professional culinary world a little bit more quickly. But thanks to TikTok normalizing it in everyday home cooking will ultimately help everyone out because people will just be used to the concept. When you see chili sauce and fish, like fish sauce, like sriracha as a Black Friday deal at Nordstrom's, like, Gotta you know they it. made it. Yeah, <laughs> you know exactly, it. exactly. You have assimilated. Congratulations. Well, I want to go back to one thing. So you wait, so you're self-taught or did you go to culinary school? Um, so I'm self-taught. And I guess the definition of that was like, I taught myself how to cook first. Um, and then 
those skills got me jobs at not only my own pop-up restaurant, which I was doing shortly after I had taught myself how to cook, um, but I <laughs> nice. st- also started working for a lot of chefs in Detroit who at that point in time were about to open their own restaurants, which hadn't been built yet because it was like a first wave of new development in the city. And people were like, well, we need hands that could cook. So I got hired because Mm -hmm. of that. And that not only got me jobs at restaurants, private kitchens, led to me opening my own kitchen. And I worked the line for like a couple of years over, over a spread of time for other restaurants. So I never went to culinary school. And I also didn't really like start from the bottom at any given restaurant, which is Mm -hmm. another very common way to learn how to be a cook. I just was fortunate enough to be good enough that I just got a job. So you were in law school, you learned how to... Wait, wait, where's law come into this? Okay, so I taught myself how to cook while I was in law school. And then Mm -hmm. I got my degree. In, okay. in, in law. I got my law degree. And then I was working for the prosecutor's office as an intern for my last two years mm. of law school. And then the summer after, I failed the bar exam by three points. Oh, no. All that studying, three points. <laughs> um, And then I took the bar exam again, and it was like a really messed up year where I think like half the amount of people that took the bar exam failed in Michigan. And I failed that one by two points. Oh, and then gosh. my ex broke up with me, and I blacked out for like a month, and I came out of it with a yoga teacher certification. and uh and then i also got like and also after that i got a call from my supervisor at the prosecutor's office and she had offered me a job even though i had failed the bar exam she was like oh you know you'll get it i mean she was like well you got you got off by three points the first time it's two points the first (laughs) the the second time you've either got you'll either pass or you have one more to go so I got a job mm-hmm. offer for it and I said, no, um, I'm going to stay being a cook because I was doing that all throughout as well. Um, I'm going to stay in food. I feel like my place is in food, uh, even though there was obviously more security in being an attorney. And that was pretty much it. I was pretty much after that, I was like this renegade cook bouncing from pop-up to pop-up and opening mm-hmm. uh, and, and working in just random parts of the city, opening up in like abandoned storefronts, inside a letter press, in museums. We were just serving food pretty much anywhere we could. And this is on top <laughs> of you having a theater degree. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> The theater degree is helping, right? Oh, oh, totally. A lot more than the law degree. <laughs> yeah, no. Oh. The uh, theater kid to TikToker pipeline is very real. Um, it's it's going to be hard. It like if you have a favorite content creator on TikTok, uh, chances are they know a little bit of musical theater. Oh yeah, we're Broadway gays, so we're, yeah. we appreciate that one hundred percent. It's just funny hearing that story because like I, I think I think of people who do traditionally professional career routes or in school for, and then choosing something they finally love. I feel like in my head, there's like this magical moment where you just have faith and it happens. But I've been researching this a lot and like listening. Cause like you were 
me and Don't are both fun employed and we're like, maybe you go back to the same jobs, maybe we switch things up. But the having the faith to do the switching things up is hard. But the more I like kind of research and hearing your story, I feel like it's more like happy accidents. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I think that's where the pandemic ultimately kicked mm-hmm. in. It provided so many people with, in a sick and twisted way, a safety net or a security blanket um, to pursue these things mm-hmm. without the fear of any kind of repercussion of taking a career risk. Because we weren't doing anything anyway. There was no FOMO because the world had literally stopped. So that's why you have a lot of food content creators now that came up through TikTok, that came up through the food scene, but also like Joanne Molinaro, who was a partner lawyer at her firm in Chicago. And you had people who, electric engineers, people who are, Mm. like there were people, there there were people, I'm not naming names, but there are like famous TikTokers who were pretty much all but homeless. Mm. And now they're like bi-coastal with rich. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because of TikTok. Like it's wild uh, uh, because of TikTok and the pandemic. To bring it back to like this, uh, the identity pot when we were, you were talking about third culture. Uh, I'm curious, does the word Gaijin connect with you at all? Oh, 100%. I think queerness, obviously the Asian slash Chinese part of me is a huge part of my culinary identity. And... There are some people who, like, there are a lot of gay people, gay cooks in not not proper culinary. There are a lot of gay cooks in food media. And as mm-hmm. I have come to find out, there are a lot of lesbians in the professional culinary scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but in gay media itself, like, you know, there are people that try to, it's a, div, it, it's a, there is a division on whether or not like there's a queerness to food when it's cooked by queer people. Mm. Um, I'm of the camp that says queerness when it comes to creativity is always inherent in any kind of creative output because when you are queer, you are automatically just that much more free in your expression. Mm-hmm. So I think people who live a... I guess you would say like a conventional path in life. Like they, they, they have a pretty regular starting point on how they view the creative process. But because of our fearlessness in expression, I think queer people start at a five as opposed to a one. Mm-hmm. And mm, I like that. Um, yeah, queer creative people, I should say. Um, they start at a five. Everybody gets, everybody has the ability to get to a 10 but queer creatives just because they don't have that inherent like fear of holding back because they had been hiding for so long. And so we just express a little bit stronger and we start a little bit more boldly. And that translates to anything that has creative output. And that includes food. There's less walls to climb over to get to the truth. Yep. We're not afraid of being a little silly. But this is a question that we've asked several guests, however you want to answer it. Mm-hmm. Like when was actually the first time that you felt quote unquote like Gaijin? Gaijin. Gaijin. <laughs> That's a good question. I'd probably say it was like once I, after I had hung out with you guys oh. that first time. Oh, wow. Oh. Because okay. I didn't really have a gay Asian group, friend group. I had a small one when I was in Hong Kong, but I would only see them like once 
every few years. And I still do have maintained friends from that group. And, but we don't see each other often enough to look for me to feel like I'm part of something. But of course, after the parting that we did, who can't feel like you're not a part of anything, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, you know, you all know too much. So <laughs> yeah, we're a family now. Uh, <laughs> or a cult. Yeah. But apart from that, like my day-to-day life does not really include, and it's by no choice of mine, but it does not include a lot of Asian people. I mean, Detroit is not really known for a large Asian population, mm-hmm. let alone a queer one. There are a few of us. There are literally a few of us. When you ask me about Asians in Detroit, I see individual faces of people that I've met, mm-hmm. not bars of people, groups of people. So um, it was very limiting. And to see people like y'all and people like Kevin who blew my mind when he told me he was sixth generation. Uh, yeah. It yeah, still blows was, our mind. Yeah. yeah. Sixth generation. So it's like there are potentially, there are potentially like Chinese people who are great, great grandparents who know less Chinese than I do. Mm-hmm. And that blows my mind. And like just not never having grown up in, in that kind of community, like, you know, I truly kind of felt like, oh, okay, this is what it's meant to be both things at the same time. I've always been queer. I have always been Asian, but I very rarely had the opportunity to have both of those worlds meet. And it's really cool whenever I get the chance for that to happen. Well, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... Now, uh, just gonna fast forward. Uh, you have a few exciting weeks ahead of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're coming out with a cookbook. Yeah, and cookbook. yeah, how's that feel? Tell us about it. It feels crazy. Writing a book, at least to me, feels like, and I don't know if either you guys might have been good students. I certainly was not when I was younger. But did you ever feel like the looming? that looming pressure of long-term homework on you. Like somebody gave you like an assignment that was like an extended assignment Mm -hmm. and you might've waited too long. And there's just like this weight that's over you all the The time. Yeah. Like like all the time. Mm -hmm. It's like that, but for two years and as an (laughs) adult, Um, I took, I took a year to write this book and then there are still things about it that I'm still like working on or, or, or like doing the final touches on mm-hmm. um, right now. For example, like my book in my book has like a few QR codes. And when you scan your phone over parts of the book, um, it'll send you to a YouTube video where I illustrate what is in the book. So like a lot of dumpling folding, oh, which is nice. very, very difficult to explain in using just written words. Um, I actually, well, you can scan the QR code and it was like, we're just going to go over and it sends you to a private video that is only attached to the book. Oh, that's cool. And it was like, we're going to learn how to fold these together. So I'm still working on that right now. Um, The video has been shot, but they needed to be edited and uploaded. And are you doing that all yourself? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Another part about writing a book is like, it really is as isolating as people would imagine it, um, even as a person who never have, I've never written professionally in my life, never got paid for a single word I had 
ever put on a page before this book. Still, it's just like getting a book deal. It's like, hey, that's great. Here's your first installment. Good luck. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> Last time we saw you, you were saying that you hadn't had a vacation since the one year before we last saw you. Yeah. The last time I took a trip that was like all for fun was with the last time that I was with you guys. And the thing is like, yes, that is not a very... <laughs> I mean, I took, I spent that year writing a book, maintaining a YouTube channel and being a TikToker. So it was like very little time that I had to actually like have off. But it was all stuff that was like, the book will eventually be finished. The YouTube mm -hmm. will eventually be something that will is coasting. TikTok will eventually be something that like calms down a little bit. So I knew I was like maintaining a sprint for a really long time, but I knew that there was an end to it. And it is, uh, and it's worth it. The work that I put into everything, I'd say was definitely worth it. And I also had a very supportive, have a very supportive partner who is also a workaholic and also works from home. So even though we work all the time, we always see each other. And so like, there's a lot of factors that make, I guess, this less than ideal work-life balance something that isn't too bad. The fact that you can do it from home, the fact that we're, you're never too far from the people you love when you do it, I think it's... I wouldn't do it forever, but I could do it for a while. And you're also doing something that you love. Yeah, yeah. So what's in your book? What is this creative brainchild that you skipped taking the bar exam for the third time. <laughs> uh, so some of the recipes in the book, well, the first chapter of the book is actually a lot of like basic sauces. Mm. Um, so like ginger scallion oil, uh, there's chili Favorite. crisp in there. Because the ultimate thesis of the book is third culture. And that means cross-cultural cuisine, which means my ultimate goal is for people to kind of take this book as an inspiration to create completely unique dishes of their own. Like mm. it's such, it would be such a dream of mine to see somebody who was Mexican or Nigerian or Korean or Vietnamese to like take those sauces and then like apply those basic Chinese sauces to their own food and then hopefully tag me on Instagram so I can see it and maybe make mm. it for myself. After those sauces are some like, easier snacks. But then at the last chapter are like me taking those concepts as far as I could go at the time um, under the context of Chinese American food. So basic sauces in the front, and then it gets a little less basic. So it goes from like chili oil to a chorizo chili oil. And then oh. you go through, um, and then I teach you how to make uh, Portuguese bread. And in there we do a spam ginger scallion egg lettuce and tomato sandwich and then it goes all the way to um like dan dan lasagna um Ooh, i teach you how crazy. to make lion's head meatballs the really the really big lion's head meatballs we we go through like a traditional cantonese preparation of the soup but on the other page it's taking those meatballs and putting it on a plate of spaghetti because mm. a giant cartoonishly large meatball on a plate of spaghetti was something that I always like enjoyed the concept as a child because mm -hmm. I saw it in TV cartoons, cloudy with a chance of meatballs, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and then Hong Kong style chicken and waffles. So using like egget waffles with um, karage chicken. There's uh, also like a chipotle mango, sweet and sour pork, um, 
orange chicken that's made with like orange soda that is like local to Detroit oh. called Fago, like a Fago orange chicken. So a lot of things that were just like either inspired by my locale or just me playing with the concept of like what would have happened to Chinese American food if we weren't held back with the stigma of what Chinese American food was? Mm-hmm. What if we were allowed to like be creative with it all the time? So, and that had like so many just different sources of inspiration, um, but it ultimately ended up with something that I think is pretty fun. It's like if Amy Tan wrote her cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> I really should not have waited to intermittent fast while doing this episode because I am starving listening to you list off all the recipes. I remember so many of your videos kept me well-fed during lockdown. And as you're well-known for championing frozen dumplings so much, I ate so many dumplings, um, you know, covered in different toppings like the enchilada sauce, the blended (laughs) veggies that you're about to throw away, and my favorite, the Japanese curry sauce. Oh my God, that was so good. Did these make it into the book? Um, they did oh. not. They didn't, they, they, they didn't, but at the same time, it's, I still encourage very heavily the use of pre-made frozen mm-hmm. dumplings um, in my book. I, I think there, there is like definitely a mention of just like throwing them in there because that, that's, that's, my, that's my default meal when I'm tired when I'm not tired, when I like it, it's always something that like I've got in the freezer and I'm always happy to eat. Um, and then just throwing that together with what, with whatever Japanese curry or sag or enchilada sauce or vodka sauce, everything is better with the dumplings that you like just pulled out of a freezer and boiled really quickly. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, to celebrate your new cookbook, we're going to ask you for some hot, quick takes, and we're going to participate too. So are you ready, John? Yes. First topic, I know something that you and Doncha will have a hot take on. Oh, God. First topic, MSG. Oh, my God. Uh, you go first. Well, what's, what's the take? Am I pro-MSG? Because obviously, yes. Yeah, what, what's your yeah, take yeah. on it? Well, okay, so I mean, like, it, I don't even feel... It's gotten to the point, MSG has gotten to the point where it's like, it shouldn't be, it's so, like, not a take for me anymore because... 
a take a, a take could be right or wrong, and people who are just anti MSG are just like scientifically wrong, mm-hmm. and they're just based off of like ignorance, fear fear mongering, and just like the nastiest part of the wellness industry. So I'm just like, if you disagree with me on the subject that MSG is like, and there's nothing harmful about MSG unless you have way too much of it, which is possible, but you can have way too much of salt in the very same way. If you come at me with like anti-MSG rhetoric or something like that, like that's that's not opinion. That's just being yeah. wrong. And I am going to literally make a character judgment on you based on that. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah, it's pretty racist, probably. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is based on xenophobia and racism, bad science. And that's the reason why it's okay to judge people poorly based off of that. Yeah. I'm always surprised because I think I was on the same page as you where I feel like people should know by now, but they don't unless you call it umami. umami. That's the new... <laughs> yeah. That's when it's allowed, umami. Yeah. I'm like, meanwhile, natural flavors has been the secret ingredient cover for MSG in Western processed foods since MSG became like something that was shunned. They just changed it to natural flavoring and that's all that it is. So everybody had been eating it the whole time. So yes, I'm going to, I make a judgment call whenever I come across this argument. Yeah. So I think I've evolved on the topic, but (laughs) I would like to present a different origin story that oh. it's not just xenophobia, because it has been something passed down from generations of my family since Vietnam. And I grew up from my parents saying, oh, you're getting a, you're getting a bad stomach after that bowl of pho at the restaurant because they put too much MSG. And in Vietnam, a lot of people, some people just believe MSG is bad. I don't know if it's taken from, there's the, the xenophobic roots informed that, but I grew up in a household where the Asian people told me that the MSG was bad. And why I've evolved on the topic is because once I said something like on a group chat with Doncha here with Chris here, and I was like, <laughs> I oh I had a bad I got a bad stomach after eating something in like San Jose, like probably the MSG. Because your food was bad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, probably because my food is bad. But all caps, Chris Doncha style, like that is so racist. And I'm it's, like, what it is? Like I it's, I have grown up with that. It's actually very easy to tell when your food has too much MSG in it because people don't realize that MSG, when there's too much MSG in food, it actually, there is a very strong taste. It tastes like a ramen packet because that is the Uh, highest concept. So you mm -hmm. can have anything from fries to chips or anything. If it tastes like Doritos or a ramen packet, that's how you know there's too much MSG in it. And even then, that's not necessarily enough MSG to make you sick that's just it's like putting too much salt in something like i no longer taste the food i just taste the salt i no longer taste the food i taste the msg i mean i feel like when it comes to receiving that kind of stigma from within our communities like that stigma was imported Mm -hmm. like it wasn't asian people that had anything to against like this product it was from probably a western influence yeah, my my dad still believes it. My dad still thinks, or he still goes to the pho restaurant that says no MSG, or he tries to cook without the MSG. My mom, she lives in, been in Vietnam or back in Vietnam for six years now, and so she's all about the MSG. But she's like, <laughs> even when you make the dipping sauce with fish sauce for your spring rolls, she's like, you have to put a little MSG in it to bring it all together. Yeah. Right? And yeah. I think 
don't you call me at once. He's like, well, I've seen you cook pho before and you use the mushroom powder, don't you? I'm like, yeah. Well, that, do you know that's a little bit of MSG? Like, <laughs> and then I, re- then I think what really sealed the deal for me was like, okay, I love these uh, jalapeno cheddar Cheetos. And I'm like, what do they put in this that's so good? Then it's I realized, the, what is monosodium glutamate? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's in a lot of all these. It's a, literally in every chip. <laughs> yeah. Every great chip. And I started noticing it on Doritos, on Pringles and everything. And oh. if you take if you take regular restaurant uh, tortilla chips and then you mm-hmm. put SG on it, tell me it doesn't taste like Doritos. Like that's, oh. that's what they are. Your best chip. Okay, yeah. next one. What's your current food obsession? My current food obsession. I had just gotten off my tomato sandwich kick. Oh, uh, yeah. Where I, I saw was that making, video. yeah. Of, you know, all, like the three weeks worth of, I did for, I, for whatever reason, um, I had realized that it was the end of tomato season in Michigan and I had not eaten a t- single tomato sandwich, which, my, which is my favorite thing to eat. I love it. Um, during the, the tomato season in Michigan, because when it's good tomatoes, that's really all you need. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to make this a series and I'm going to make myself a tomato sandwich every day with tomatoes from my friends, like farms and gardens and just see what I can do with it. Because like, you know, some people can be purists and be like, oh, tomatoes, mayo, white bread, salt and pepper, and that's all you need. I was like, well, if I'm going to eat it every day, I'm going to take creative license on this thing because I don't want to eat the same thing every day. Which was Um, your favorite variation of the tomatoes? My favorite variation... Um, I, I, there was one with tum, which is the Lebanese garlic sauce. Mm. Um, oh, that, that Lebanese garlic so sauce. Good. And it was so, so very good. That one yeah. and the curry oh, one <laughs> were excellent. Um, I did a curry tomato sandwich where I did like a curry fried butter, put that into a mayonnaise and then put a tomato on that. And then I did the tum. Um, I do end it. It's been posted on YouTube already. It hasn't been posted on t- uh, on, on on Facebook yet or IG Reels yet, but <clears throat> somebody sent me caviar to put in a tomato sandwich, oh, and wow. I made a t- caviar tomato sandwich. And that thing, like the fact that it wasn't automatically the best, like tomb was still really good, but that one was like a solid number two. Like if it was like a like a, I highly recommend putting caviar on a tomato sandwich if you have the opportunity to, because that was amazingly good. Not just novel, it was good. But again, now that I'm coming off of that, I'm, I'm feeling like as it gets colder, if it ever gets colder, I should say, it's still not that cold. Um, I, I really think like it's going to be a rising of the grilled cheese. <laughs> Ooh. So good. Yeah. I was uh, completely obsessed with the tomato sandwich when so kimchi actually turned me onto it. Yeah. La, that was like last year, I think. She, yeah. She, yeah. she saw the glory of the tomato sandwich. And it was just a simple recipe. And I, yeah. when I worked at the tech company I used to work at, and I think for like two weeks straight every lunch, I just kept making it. And my... My um, my boss actually asked me, "Are you on some sort of weird diet? <laughs> Is this some new Gwyneth Paltrow thing where you eat tomato sandwich?" That's awesome. Like, yeah. and everyone was like, "There's about making his tomato sandwich with the mayonnaise again." So the funny thing is, like, I get a lot of nasty comments on YouTube 
from people that have never had a proper good tomato sandwich. Mm. Um, and the, it's shockingly aggressive and actually quite classist. A lot of those things like, oh, this looks poor as hell. And I was like, well, we'll just wait till you oh. see the caviar video. But, uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, there are a lot of people that, A, really don't like tomatoes, don't understand mm -hmm. that tomatoes can taste good by themselves on bread because they... And then I get comments like, oh, where's the lettuce and tomato? Or uh, where's the lettuce and bacon? There are lots of shocking amount of people that, you know, have not ever had a good tomato sandwich and probably will not have one, which is so weird because it's like not expensive. It's also you just, just a need to get them in tomato. season. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Bao, in your intermittent fasting, do you have like a current food obsession? I'm like fucking drooling at this point. Um, <laughs> it's like it's like going out the corner of my mouth. Um, my current food obsession <laughs> is <laughs> the um, instant abalone porridge korean porridge Ooh, yeah. that comes in like a packet that you need to literally just like tear open halfway and heat for two minutes oh, is that i've seen that at the chinese grocery store and i I'll thought get about getting it it's the bb go is the uh brand i like so i i got my covid booster and i was like whenever i get my covid booster it's every excuse to eat any comfort food i have for like two or three days and so I was like, I feel like a kanji, but what's going to keep? And I saw, and I, I know this is my favorite. So I bought like five packs, just like leave in my pantry or whatever. I finished it in two days. I just did you get the latest booster shot? I did. I did. The booster did, always gets Did you gets feel anything? Me. Like I didn't feel anything for this one. My arm was sore and literally there was nothing else. We're I so felt into it now. bad for like a, a day, but Eating. I just kept giving myself the permission to eat the comfort food for like three or four days. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sick. <laughs> I'm doing my part. God, those sound so good. My stupid obsession is the Marie Calendar chicken pot pie. <laughs> Don't hate me. It's so actually, processed, actually, but it makes me so happy. That chicken pot pie um, was a. It was an inspiration for one of the recipes in the book, and I oh. made a beef and broccoli pot pie. <sighs> well, actually, in a skillet because I used to use love those so much as a child. So no. Yeah. I, the, you, your feelings so are valid. And <laughs> my favorite thing as a kid was I added rice to it because I didn't think they were big enough and I didn't want to eat two, but then oh, I actually oh, would brilliant. end mm. up eating two and I would oh put rice God. in both of them. That is genius because that like creamy chicken gravy on rice on is the so rice. Good. You know what? It probably scratched the same itch as like the Hong Kong mushroom cream sauce on rice. Ooh, Do you remember the, those? The, the, um, and then also the... The fried fish with corn cream sauce over rice. Yes. We love to put those on rice. So naturally that Mary counted. See, you're, uh -oh. you're already doing third culture shit. All yes. right. Okay. <laughs> you better do that later and tag him. Right. <laughs> I'm going to start my own cooking show. How to bastardize a, a dish that I love as a child. What did, was it called pan in hand? Hand pan? What is it hands in pans. Hand. <laughs> you do hands, hands in pan, pans. Marie Calendar, chicken pot pie rice. <laughs> but can you do like a Korean vegan style, like, you know, voiceover while you do it though? Oh, you have to come with that, a story. That, that soothing, voice. Voice. soothing voice and a story. Yeah. When I was laid off... <laughs> No, I'll, I'll just stick with my world-weary drag queen voice <laughs> with a cigarette hanging it out of, out of my mouth. Best. Oh, no one's doing that. No one's doing that yet. So, All right, next take. Give us an unpopular opinion on a popular food item. Uh, 
I have the thought that like pretty much anything that is expensive is already overrated. So oh. if you're, which is funny because we just talked about putting caviar on a tomato sandwich. <laughs> but like I do ultimately think, even though I did that, that caviar is very, very overrated. Um, same with truffles. Same with, I was about to say foie gras, but no, I think foie gras is is actually just like appreciated as much as it normally is. And I know you love to hit on microgreens. <laughs> Microgreens, microgreens are just like I, I don't know. My, those are they are wildly overpriced. I will agree to that because I used to use a lot of microgreens in my food, and those tiny little flowers. People don't know that that is sometimes the most expensive thing on those plates. Really? Yes, yes. Those purple flowers are very expensive. Grams for gram, huh? How expensive? Can so they get? it would be like I think like a case of. Borage flowers, when they had just started coming out, they would be like 30 bucks for like eight ounces, something. Oh, wow. So like just for one, just put one flower on the plate. Like, you know, it would ultimately be like the most, like, girl, you can do whatever the fuck you want with that lamb, but you better eat that goddamn flower. (laughs) But yeah, yeah. So like expensive food in general, I think fine dining in general. I appreciate that it exists, but I don't. I I do think ultimately it is all very overrated. Yeah, not your jam. Not not a very. I guess not very hot take. I guess. Oh oh, I've got a better one. I got a better. I got a better one. Um, I think L.A. is as good of a food city as New York. Is. Oh, mm. I like that. I think a lot of people would disagree with that, but I think I think the food that you can get in Los Angeles is on par with some of the best food that you can get in New York, and oftentimes much cheaper. That mm-hmm. is very important. I'll piggyback off that. I think LA is the best food city in the U.S. <laughs> I just think it's the and maybe because I was raised here, and any produce just hits different here. It's true. I I might I might actually be inclined to believe you if I just didn't dislike a majority of the rest of about what makes LA as a city. Yeah. <laughs> We're yeah, that this is that's isolated to the food. Yeah. If it was isolated to the food, I might agree with you that Los Angeles and the greater outlying areas do con- uh, constitute as like some the best cuisine that you can get in the United States, but unfortunately because it's in LA, you know, like you can't have Got a DACA star. Girl, we're gonna get so much haters about that. <laughs> bring it, bring it. I, I listened, I listened to your podcast. I know you like you had that bullshit about the stars on Spotify. Fuck them. If you're listening, oh. fuck you guys. Yeah. Uh, they're love great. Us. Oh. Yeah, I've, I've, we're, no, we've, we've processed it now. It's just kind of funny. Uh, also, <laughs> w- one last thing before we go to do you don't you? I think bell peppers are trash. Please take bell peppers off everything. <laughs> Oh, I hate bell Kimchi peppers, especially in Chinese food. Like that chow mein with a bell pepper and all onions, disgusting. I know. I still love Mexican food. I know it's in a lot of Mexican food, but I just do not like bell peppers. You know when people eat the bell peppers raw and they like they dip it in cream cheese or something? I'm like, who? Are you insane? I like, <laughs> like the red that? ones. I'll eat the red ones. Yeah, colorful bell peppers, the non-green yeah. ones. More ripened. The green bell, well, they're all the same bell pepper. Oh, yeah, more yeah. ripened. I'm okay. Yeah. Green, disgusting. What okay, so uh, what's an unpopular food item that deserves a second opinion? 
I don't really like. Uh, or, or like maybe underrated, underrated food items. Underrated, underrated, underrated food. I mean, I think an early version of that would be like your love for uh, frozen dumplings in a way. Frozen, yeah, frozen dumplings and tomato sandwiches. I guess. Like, mm-hmm. I think some. I think some of the best food that you can eat are like the simple ones. I think ease of making things, especially now that I've switched over from like showing off the food that I can cook to actually like trying to teach people to cook. I put a lot more value in how accessible something is to make and actually, and actually kind of like weigh that in on how good food is. You're the people's chef. Well, I guess as long as I don't have to be around them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Chris, what's that? What's your item? Oh gosh, I, I almost wanted to say the pot pie again. Um, <laughs> yeah, we can. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna pass on this one for a bit. Minus fermented shrimp paste. <laughs> Have you had fermented shrimp paste before? Vietnamese fermented shrimp paste. Oh yeah, I love it. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't say sit there on the couch and have it while watching. Netflix. Oh no, no, but like, it makes for some... for when you're if you're making like laksa or something like that. Like it, the shrimp paste is shrimp paste, and I think like stinky food, quote unquote stinky foods like that. Yeah. Like I just have an automatic great appreciation for them because I know what they do to food, mm-hmm. and I know what they do to some of my favorite food like laksa. Um, so I smell that and people might think that it's like n- not pleasant or something like that, but I'm like, I'm, I'm sniffing that like it's like wine. Yeah, like the stinky tofu and, and everything. Or a hot guy Which brings socks. me to, uh, which brings me, oh, damn. Uh, we're, oh, we got to feet, real am quick, I? We? <laughs> I think mine actually might be durian. Durian I fell in love with when I was in Asia. So good. Because I think what's the problem with having it here is that it's not fresh. I always had it frozen. And people love to hate on it. That smells like dead bodies. And yes, it does. But you just got to get in your mouth. We put dicks in our mouths. Other things are gross. Dicks hang in toilets. We eat ass. You're fine. Eat some fucking durian. Kim actually explained it really well. That good, good durian tastes like caramelized onions. And I was like, I agree. I agree. Oh, Sweet yeah. and just a little bit of savory. Yeah, my my sister and my mom loved durian growing up, but they would and I didn't. I had I totally hated it. And then they would store it in the freezer. And I would get so mad because when you get ice from the freezer for like a nice cold glass of you water, it would hit, <laughs> hit a durian. Yes. But yeah, it wasn't until Singapore where I was like, I fell in love with it. Cause I think the durian just hits different in Singapore. Yeah. Especially during um during durian season and you have to try the durian mcflurry at mcdonald's in singapore if you're Ooh, there. i bet so, that's good that's so, good. so good okay but last take maybe that's just more of a question at this point <laughs> um asian dish to avoid when you're planning to bottom oh um nothing just let them deal with it Oh. <laughs> eat what you want i am an advocate i even though i am a top i am an advocate for bottoms rights y'all should be thank fed. you yes. thank you there should be more hashtag bottoms, bottoms rights just bottoms eat like right. right before it happens because it still takes time to get down there yeah you know what i am a recovering bottom like ocd boot doucher oh, oh because oh, okay. well the douching i will do but then when i used to hook up a lot 
I just felt ridiculous. Like, I'm like, we're in a climate crisis and I'm flushing all this water. <laughs> no, I mean, just like think of how the body works. Like if you're going on a date and you get right into it, first of all, I would be more worried about like getting fucked while feeling heavy would be more of an issue than like yeah. autumning would be. Like it takes what, like eight hours for food to pass through you? It's, it's not... <laughs> Like yeah. whatever, whatever it is you're eating, it doesn't walk like a gay. It's not going down faster just because you're gay. <laughs> like it's, it takes time. So what it's, whatever you eat the night before. And actually, I think I have confirmation from a lot of like my friends who do porn with this. It's like, it's always what you eat the night before a shoot. And a lot of people will like fast before a shoot and then like eat nothing but yogurt or something like that. And then do, oh, wow. but honestly, eat what you want. Half the times they don't, they, you get ghosted half the times off your grinder hookups anyway. What are you going to mm-hmm. do? Like be lonely and hungry? That's sad. Don't do that. Eat. Yeah. So, no, sometimes I'm like, if you can't make it here by 8 p.m., I'm going to eat. So yeah. See you later. The friends who do porn, it happens all the time. They just yeah. never film it. They just never film it. Yeah. They just never film it. It's in the editing floor. Yeah. And on the bed sheets. <laughs> that is upsetting. But that's why you should always have like the towel put on put on the sheet. And that's maybe like so not. unsexy though. It is. It is okay. I won't say I don't like it. And it does ruin the mood. It's but practical. at the same time, like you should make it a point to not make people feel bad about it. And people should still like not, you know, not hold back on what makes them happy. Yeah. So yeah. have that pizza. Eat that pad thai. Have the curry. Have the curry. Have the shrimp paste. Have Extra shrimp, shrimp paste. paste. Exactly. <laughs> Do it. Numbing spices all the way. Who cares? He's just a top anyway. Bottoms rights. Bottoms rights. <laughs> Sadly, we've reached the end. Uh, we want to congratulate you on your cookbook, John. And thank you for joining us here. Thank you for having me. This was great. It was good to see you guys again. Yeah, we have to see each other soon. Yeah. And maybe on your book tour, because you're going to be in... LA and San Francisco. That's right. So at the there are no like official dates posted as of the recording of this video, but there will be a tour that goes from New York to San Francisco to Los Angeles to Chicago at the end of October, uh, between the end of October and the first week of November. So if people want to pre-order your book. Yeah, my book is available as of now already available for pre-order. Uh, you can find that link in any of my socials at John Kung, J-O-N-K-U-N-G on Instagram or YouTube or TikTok. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> the main um, one. Or TikTok. Yeah, any of those in the, the links in the bios will point you straight to the pre-order for the book. Why is it important everyone pre-orders? Pre-ordering is super important to a an author and a first-time author because it's the, our best chance to make any bestseller lists. And mm-hmm. also pre-orders tell bookstores how popular a book is. So physical bookstores, if they get a lot of questioning, uh, questions and pre-orders for it, they'll put it on their window. And things like that make a huge difference. It can make or break a book. That's why we're putting so much pressure into, well, that's why there is so much pressure to do well on pre-orders. If you were going to buy it, a book, the book anyway, um, it's mm-hmm. not just for me, for any author that you want to support. Pre-ordering their book helps them immeasurably. If you're listening now, we have the pre-order link in the show notes. Buy it absolutely right now. Pull over on the side of the road. Do it. And to send us off, John, what's one recipe from your upcoming book the listeners should try making first? Mm. Oh, man. Um, ooh. 
I would say I would say the lion's head meatballs because then you get a soup and spaghetti out of it <laughs> and a big meatball and a big meatball and don't we just love a big meatball i love Ooh. a comically large meatball I, yes i want a big meatball right now <laughs> and that was no double entendre actually no, i actually She's really do want to know <laughs> i'll put it in a hot pot i'll put it on You're rice right. i'll put it in a uh, marie calendar's pot pie i'll do anything <laughs> anyway so i'm gonna go eat bye-bye everyone bye bye If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow & Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM.